0: Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome back to Test Tubes and Cauldrons, a podcast where we talk about the science behind spirituality and attempt to merge the two as they were in ancient times. In this episode, we are going to be talking about being safe while doing magic. I intend to call this episode Don't Be an Idiot just because I think it's kind of funny and it fits in with the theme pretty well. But we're going to cover a wide range of topics from fire safety to working with herbs and being safe while doing that, essential oils, crystals, many, many different things. So if you're interested in that, please join us. But actually, before we get into that, (laughs) let's do our What Happened on This Day segment. So we are recording this on March 20th. And on this day in 1916, Albert Einstein's theory of general relativity was published as an academic paper in a physics journal. This theory accounted for the slow rotation of the elliptical path of the planet Mercury, which Newtonian gravitational theory failed to do. I was actually just talking to somebody a little bit earlier in this week about the Einstein's theory of relativity, so I thought it was really interesting and kind of funny that it, like, coincided. Okay, so let's go ahead and just head into our topic. Let's dive right in. This is going to be a long episode because I feel like we're going to rant a little bit in our respective areas. Um, Too often in the spiritual community, new practitioners begin to dabble with almost little to no regard of the safety issues that are found in nearly every single facet. So in this episode, we'll be talking about safety in the spiritual community, the many issues we see with it, and ways to practice safely based on common scientific safety guidelines that we should follow to ensure no life-threatening accidents happen. We don't want any tubes breaking or the equivalent of that, magically speaking. The first thing that we wanted to talk about was fire safety. So does anybody want to start with that? Let's talk about maybe what a fire safety hazard is.
1: We need to think about fire as three things. We need fuel, heat and oxygen. So if if you have those three things, you have a fire, but you also have a risk. So when you're managing a fire, you always need to bear in mind that you can remove one of those three things and decrease the risk. So that means keeping your workspace not cluttered, so there's not too much fuel around for the fire to spread. That means having an appropriate plan to put stuff out when you need to. So that might be something to get rid of the oxygen, so covering it up, perhaps, or using sand or using water, and making sure that you use the right type of fire management for the type of fire. Because if you put water on a grease fire, it's just going to go up. I'm sure I'm not the only one, but I've definitely tried to put water on the wrong kind of fire, and it's it's got worse uh, because of that there. So I guess those are the main things to bear in mind from my perspective on fire safety.
0: Yeah, I think a big one for me with fire safety is to plan ahead and also have an emergency plan in place. So a lot of fire like mishaps happen because people go to burn like in the magical community, something popular is the bay leaf. But like you start burning it and you don't have a fire safe container nearby to drop it into. So now you're holding this burning bay leaf like freaking out because it's going to burn you or maybe the ashes are falling onto like a wooden surface or onto your carpet, which is what I have. None of that is good. (laughs) So not planning ahead and having a bowl that you can put it in that's fire safe and won't melt or anything is really, really important. But kind of along the same lines, it's really important to have a plan in place if something were to catch on fire and if the, the fire was to get out of control. And not only to have a plan, but also to practice it. Because you can have a plan, the perfect plan, right? But if you haven't practiced it, and it's something that's totally foreign to you, when you actually go to do it the first time, you are going to be so like, not aware or in the moment, because you're gonna be so freaked out because of the fire, like that's normal kind of panic mode mentality. But if you have a plan, and you've practiced it before, then when a fire does get out of control, if it does, hopefully, you never experience that. But if it does get out of control, you'll be able to kind of keep calm and remember, okay, these are the steps that we need to take in order to put the fire out removing some kind of fuel or to get yourself out of the situation and make sure that you leave safely so those are the two things i really want to iterate like make sure you have the appropriate things nearby to stop something or to like make sure that you're practicing fire safety and then also have a plan and have practiced your plan preferably more than once fact, the more times you do it the better think of it like the magical equivalent of like practicing the stop drop and roll anybody have any fire stories
2: gosh I mean, I guess my main thing, so I use a lot of fire in my practice, like I have a little cauldron. I once, uh, last year, me and my housemates broke up my cauldron, and roasted marshmallows over it, which is quite exciting. It was also kind of sad, though, because we're sitting there on the porch hovering over this tiny little thing. So I have these very tall, they're kind of like Greek-style pillars on my altar, and they're candle holders. And whenever I'm burning candles on them, I often will put like a little bowl of water near them just in case it falls. (laughs) It'll fall into the bowl of water. One time, this was a very stupid thing for me to do. One time I had a a little cup candle that I'd made. I made it in a little teacup and I had it on fire and I had some dried herbs in there for some reason. Started getting a little crazy. And I decided to sprinkle water on it, but I didn't sprinkle it enough. And so then the water was like and I was I was like oh like no. I was so lucky, honestly, like I could feel the heat. I'm very lucky I did not burn down my house Don't don't do that. And another thing that I see a lot of people do that I'm always careful of is essential oils. Don't put essential oils on candles. I've heard of people putting Florida water on candles. Don't really don't do that one. That one's, I think, worse. (laughs) Yeah, and like if you're doing like a cord cutting, for example, like watch that candle because that cord is gonna get burned and it's gonna go in places that the candle normally wouldn't burn. Yeah, I guess that's my general advice.
0: Yeah just like if you're if you're burning something keep an eye on it definitely don't ever leave anything burning unattended especially if you have herbs on the candle or oil on the candle or it's like you have something wrapped around it be very just be very mindful I think of where what you're doing and where you're doing it with the oil thing so every single oil that you use has a flash point and this is essentially the temperature that upon reaching it it catch on fire and essentially lead to like an oil fire, which is, you know, bad. So looking into the flashpoints of the oils that you use is really important. The reason why essential oils are really, really bad is because their flash points are really low compared to things like olive oil and grapeseed oil and, you know, so on and so forth. So using them on candles is a really terrible idea. And you might think that like, oh, well, the wax is melting like the flame isn't going to touch the oil, but that's not entirely true. The flame itself is really, really hot. The area near the flame is also really, really hot. It's going to reach really high temperatures really, really quickly. So just be very mindful of that. If you're worried about that, I would definitely consider looking up the flashpoints of the oils that you're using just so that you know. Olive oil has a fairly high flashpoint, so that's pretty safe in general. But don't like oversaturate your candle in olive oil. Use the bare minimum just to, just to be safe. Yeah, I haven't had any like major fire things. That's just because I'm really paranoid. I do remember I did a, I think it was vanishing spell. And I had a bunch of herbs in the bottom and like I had tied the person's picture to the candle itself that I it would burn along and like, you know, be gone, whatever. And that definitely got out of control. Like that paper, the paper burning along with the candle, um, that flame got real large and I was really scared there for a bit. I actually have a suit stain on my roof, like on the my ceiling of my apartment from where I did that spell. So be wary of that as well. <gasps> Holy <laughs> moly. Yes, uh,
1: wow I'm 10, 300 300. That <laughs> i definitely banished after that <laughs> they are gone <laughs> yeah it works I was, I was curious what your emergency plans actually look like so for me i have i burn more incense than anything else and i have a lot of salt around for that because it kind of acts similarly to sand so you can just put that on on a fire and you can extinguish things with it because it, it's it's starves the fire of oxygen so um you mentioned that you have some water on your altar what 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 other things do you do to kind of keep safe
2: I I first of all now that the weather's getting warmer especially 95% of the time if I'm burning anything I will burn it outside I burn it outside on the like asphalt or by the dirt where there's no grass no plants that is like my number one thing that i do however if i i do burn candles inside as well but yeah i often i have a lot of little dishes with sand in them so i will like burn the candle in the sand or near the sand i have a tripod that i burn a lot of votives on and i usually as part of you know dressing the candle i will actually put like a a layer of salt around the tripod just sort of like Almost like layering the levels of the candle will have to hit the water or hit the the sand or the, the salt before XYZ happens. I watch my candles a lot and I always make sure that if they're not outside, they are being burned in a place where if they fall, it'll either get extinguished by the fall or it will not catch whatever it is on fire. Yeah, that's pretty much mostly what I do.
0: I also try to burn things outside if I can, just because it's safer in general, and I'm not going to burn my apartment down. I had taken to not, no longer, I don't ever put herbs in the kind of like the bottom of anything anymore, and I don't usually dress my candles with herbs Um, anymore, I like, either just because I have noticed candles going out of control, and like, I don't feel comfortable with that. So actually, a lot of times what I'll do is I have, I have a bowl of salt, Um, I have both salt and sand, but for spells, I usually use salt, and I will instead mix my herbs into the salt. And then let the candle burn down that way. So that way the herbs are still being involved with their correspondences, but they're not actually in any kind of position where like they will burn and potentially catch other things on fire. So I found that to be really useful. And then I also have like a marble slate that my mom got. Like, so she bought a whole bunch of stuff from some kitchen company. They sent her this marble cutting board and she didn't want to use it because it was too heavy. So I took it. <laughs> and uh, because it's marble, like it won't burn. And so I do a lot of my like candle work on that that because it'll catch the it'll catch the wax it's easy to clean which is also nice and if something does fall on it it won't burn through anything so I will usually put that on top of my altar I'm doing it on my altar or I will actually take that outside too sometimes and burn things on that if, if necessary also a cauldron I have a cauldron I
2: burn things yeah yes I love burning things <laughs> cauldrons. but yeah you mentioned the herbs you like will mix them with salt I actually do that too when if I'm using herbs I rarely dress candles anymore but if I do I will like take my mortar and pestle and grind up the herbs until they're powder grind some salt in there and then do like a teaspoon at the most Not probably it's not even I usually just take a teaspoon and take between my fingers and rub it down the candle that that is enough yeah I used to put herbs when I made candles in the candles very bad idea don't do that it looks pretty but then you've just created another uh flame point
0: could you actually maybe talk about the because since you are a candle maker like because well, online yeah. we see a lot of candles that are being sold as like spells and they have like all the herbs and stuff being like thrown down them and got mm-hmm. like crystals in them. Can you talk about some of the dangers and like how it affects candles? The way it yeah, works.
2: so when I started making candles, I, I did stuff like that because I saw it on Etsy and I thought it was pretty. Uh, and I learned very quickly, I have a candle, actually, I think I've banished it now. Uh, there's a candle that got a little, like, it was scary. It and, like, expanded out. I was like, ah! Um, so at first it was fine because the amount of, of wax that was in there was able to sort of, it didn't catch the herbs on fire at first. And when the herbs were on fire, there was enough wax for it to not really be a problem. But as the candle burned down more and got closer to the bottom, it was more of just burning herbs inside of a very tiny hot dish with two wicks. Yeah, I can see your face you're like, Ooh. yeah, so as it got farther down the candle, it got more and more dangerous. So I think those candles can look very pretty, but if the herbs are not small enough, they won't burn away. And so then they're just going to keep getting caught on fire until you've got a very dangerous situation in your hand. Putting crystals in your candle. I've never done that. I'm of two minds of that. I feel like one, well, when the candle melts enough, that crystal's going to fall onto one of the wicks and extinguish it, at the very least. So I think that's kind of pointless. Depending on the crystal, it shouldn't, like, that's pretty much mostly what'll happen is it'll just extinguish things. But I could also foresee it, depending on what the crystal is, that crystal, like, exploding. um depending on the candle it also matters what the candle's made of i primarily work with beeswax because beeswax is pretty low temperature and beeswax is often cut with olive oil or coconut oil because it tunnels a lot which basically means that the (laughs) it just burns straight down where the wick is because beeswax is so low temperature so the coconut oil like mixes it in and lets it burn more evenly. So beeswax is probably one of the safest of the candle options because it's a, a low temperature point. Paraffin is really the one where things can get real real dicey real fast. Not only has paraffin seen sometimes as an air pollutant it can also really make that fire go crazy if you have other things attached to it i'm not versed in soy so i can't really speak about soy candles but i believe soy is is similar to beeswax in which it has a lower burn temperature
1: i was just thinking that the the um, other benefit of using salt uh, rather than sand not that there's anything wrong with sand is that you can collect ash in it and then use that as black salt litter. So it's just kind of like a nice way of recycling things. And it maybe feels like a little bit lower waste. Um, Although your safety is a priority and it should never feel like a waste to protect yourself. (laughs) Okay,
0: great. Let's move on to talk about herbs. herbs. All right. So this well, is definitely more like Hanny's territory than it is my territory. Um, so I'll let her kind of be the primary speaker. But I did separate this into a couple different categories that we can touch upon. And some of the hazards that they fall into, which I identified as foraging and identification, ingestion slash topical application, and then also burning. So Hanny, if you want to talk about foraging.
1: So the first thing you want to think about is actually where you're foraging. This is obviously going to be more difficult for people who live in cities, but are dangers for everybody so just bear in mind that everything you forage you need to wash this is because there might be pollutants on that either that being from farmland or from cars any kind of city dust it could also be from animals urinating on the uh, the foraged items people don't really think about that but that's a real danger and you can actually look up the soil pollution details in your area to kind of get a sense of how safe things are. Washing things will not get rid of all the pollutants, it's a common misconception. Some plants will actually take up pollutants into their leaves, so just washing them will not get rid of everything, which means you either need to not forage in that area, you can test the soil with a heavy metal um, test, but if you're, again, if you don't know what you're doing with that, don't do it, it's kind of the preliminary (laughs) message of this episode, I think. And the other thing is, if you're very experienced and you have your own land that you know has some pollutant, you can actually bioremediate it. So I have a friend who's passed on some resources for this. Basically, what this involves is you can grow plants that you know take up heavy metals. So that might be something like sunflowers. And then you don't use those sunflowers. Those are simply used for you know, compost, things like that. And then your land is, has been kind of purified by the sunflowers. And you can use that for growing things further on. So... It's kind of a nice way of, I guess, interacting with the land and also detoxifying things making basically making them safer for you. Did you guys do any foraging or is it, is it just me who's <laughs> into the house? I do. I
2: do a lot of foraging. Oh, you do? That's so cool. Yeah, I do a lot of foraging. I actually live in the city. It'll be exciting. Maybe we'll do another episode after I take this course, but I'm doing a course with one of the urban foragers in my area, which should be a lot of fun. I actually just got my soil tested. I was funny, I, I the check was deposited today <laughs> for the, the soil test because I basically what I ended up doing for anyone who's curious. So unfortunately, a lot of the soil tests that you buy online don't test for heavy metals. They only test like the pH. So those you generally won't do. But I encourage you to look at your local universities. So one of the universities in my area, their ecology lab, I think, does soil tests specifically for lead, which is... The, probably the biggest one but they do like for other heavy metals as well and in general too they'll they'll get the ph back as they do the test anyways and they'll make recommendations based on that in general so what i ended up doing just for anyone who wants to know what that looks like is i went around to where we we're planning on growing things in my garden and i dug i think about six inches down it was something like six to eight inches down and I took scoops of soil and I ended up, they wanted like six different samples from around the property. And I put it all in a bucket. I mixed it around, let it dry, took out any gravel, any plant as best as I could. And then I, I shipped it off to the lab and then they're going to test. It was around a cup of soil. So then they're going to test it, and let me know. And one thing that's also important to keep in mind and what you know, some of these places that test for heavy, heavy metal will tell you is that some properties do have small margins of lead in the soil there is a certain level of lead that is actually like tolerable generally though your your soil won't set off the heavy metal thing unless it's high enough i think i believe one of the things is if your house was made before 19 let me see it's in the 1970s but yeah i'll 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 circle back to that one. If your house is prior to that law passed in like the mid-70s, that is something you should look into. Like if your house was built before then or painted before then, there could be trace amounts of lead that have gotten into the property. Although if your house is built after that and you don't live in the city or really close to like major highways, you should be good because the paint is not lead-based. At least that is how it pertains in America, I should say. But yeah, when I forage in the city, I only go into parks. I never go along the little freeway there, which is sad because there are some beautiful, wonderful blooming, not blooming, but they're just they're just so ripe, the wild garlic. And I'm just like, oh, you're tempting, but you're right by the side of the road. (laughs) So that's something to keep in mind, as well as plant IDs. I think in general, unless you're trained in it, you should not forage for mushrooms.
1: I agree. I completely agree. That's my hot
2: take. Now, one can make the argue like chicken in the woods is, or head of the woods is like pretty identifiable, but in general, just leave the mushrooms. Mushrooms, in order to even confirm that it is, like you can't even confirm by looking at some of them. You have to do like a spore test, a spore print test. Don't, just don't forage mushrooms.
1: I want to come back to the um, areas that are safe to forage in. So um, there are some other things that you should bear in mind before you you go out to a particular area to forage. One is whether there are any local laws. So that might be whether it's in the UK, they call them sites of special scientific interest. Basically, they're kind of nature reserves, places where there are uh, protected species, protected environments. So you shouldn't forage there. There might also be public health warnings. So on the beaches here, sometimes they have algal blooms. So it's usually safe to forage things. But... When there's an algal bloom, they can produce toxins in the water. That means it's not safe to take things from. So you need to kind of constantly check. It's like it's a dynamic thing, right? Environments need to be monitored constantly. And the other thing my foraging book specifically says, and this is UK specific, is that if you're not experienced, then you shouldn't forage near water. And this is because um, lots of poisonous species like um, water hemlock are commonly found near water. Things like um, Adam and Eve's as well. And they can be confused with lots of other species which are not toxic. So water hemlock, six to eight leaves could kill you. Famously, mostly used to poison Socrates, but it can commonly be confused with cow parsley. So it's very, very, very easy to mix those up. And if you're not experienced, you don't know what you're doing, just don't do it. Choose something safe. Choose, choose a kind of beginner plant to forage rather than going straight to a risky area.
2: If you're looking to forage and you live in eastern United States, look at wild garlic. It's so abundant here. <laughs> I don't know why. It just loves it here. And it's delicious. <laughs> and it's very easy to identify. I did
0: look before then because someone posted a recipe in um, one of the Discord servers that we're in. And it, it was all about, like, wild garlic. And I was like, oh, shit.
2: <laughs> I want to go garlic. find some so I can go make a It's so good. I have so much
1: of it. It's really good. I just made some pesto with it, actually. For wild garlic specifically, you should make sure that you individually harvest leaves, though, because it does grow in the same soil type as Lily of the Valley, which is toxic, and also Wild Hellebore, which is also toxic. So make sure that you individually check the leaves, that they smell of garlic, because you could be harvesting something which is similar.
2: One of my other things with with foraging is it's, it's very rewarding. There are so many books. like your specific local plant life and i honestly think that one of the best ways to honor the land is to get to know the plants around you even if they're not edible and you don't want to touch them there's some there's joy i don't know that i get from being able to like identify a plant i'm like oh and then i see it somewhere else and i'm like oh i know what that is and like you really get to know the plants of your area and it just it just makes the work that i do so much so much more rewarding and uh, personal I guess.
0: Along those lines, do you guys have any yeah. like plant identification apps that you would recommend? I know yeah. I spoke with um Nike because I know she forages a lot and she recommended Picture This and iNaturalist. If you have others, this is probably a good time to throw them in. I use Picture This. Picture This is phenomenal.
1: I I use PlantsNet. So um iNaturalist, I think you can do plants and also things like mushrooms. Plantnet is just for plants. My experience is it's very slightly better at identifying plants, but obviously you're kind of limited in that you can only do plants. You can't do other other species. It's also got a really nice system. I'm not sure if the other apps have this, but it's got like a peer ranking system, so people can come and confirm your identification and um, rate them, suggest new names. So it's a really good way of you know if somebody has just like blatantly misidentified something then. you can get some confirmation from people who maybe with a bit more experience.
2: I guess one of the things that I I want to touch on just this is like from an American perspective, and I guess this also can apply to other colonized lands is be mindful of the people who live there and are the sort of the people who originally protected and harvested from the land. One of the things that I I try to support my local tribes when I do foraging specifically as a form of of giving back, and a lot of them will have donation sites. Some of them will even accept volunteer work if they accept that. Not all of them do. That's just something I encourage. If you live on colonized land, I encourage you to learn from and listen to the the local tribes. And, you know, they host, um, at least here where I am in New England, they, the, they will host these panels where they talk about the plants and how they originally worked with them, how they work with them now, what it looks like to be a good steward of the land, especially in the face of climate change and just the devastation that it has brought. So I encourage you, if you do forage, on occupied land to listen to and respect and hear the voices of the original uh, folks who tended this land before?
1: It's a really, really, really good point. And even if you don't live somewhere like that, um, it kind of brings up another point. Um, You need to think about over-harvesting. So what the kind of etiquette, at least in my foraging book, um, it says that you should never take more than half of what you find. And if something is not very abundant, the best thing is just not to pick it at all. Um so an example was that I was foraging recently and I came across some english violets and although they seem to be quite abundant in the area I happen to know that they suffer from overharvesting so I was like you know what even though I love violets I think they're great you know for like glamour things and they're great for making candies and syrups I can leave these because it's more—it's it, better for the environment to have these and the bees to to use them than it is for me to make a syrup or whatever out of them. So, just be mindful of like what you're taking and how much you're taking, and um, and if you can, like give back wherever. Like I think Phil makes a really really good point.
0: Okay, if you could see our outline, you would see that we have a couple of things in capital letters, which is like yelling at you screen. And those are double check the plant ID. Please make sure that you know what you're working with. I think we've touched upon the danger of that a couple of times, but it is crucial to know that what you have and what you're going to like, if you're going to use it in something that you actually have what you, what you think you do. So please double check the plant ID. If you aren't sure, don't eat it. Don't touch it. Like if you aren't sure, just don't do anything (laughs) with it. Just leave it be um, and move on to something else. Those are kind of the things that we are yelling at you through the screen to, to be very mindful of.
2: Oh, I just I scrolled down through the thing and remembered one thing. When you're foraging, never touch moss or lichen. Leave it alone. Do not take moss or lichen. <laughs> let it grow, especially lichen. I know lichen is beautiful, but do not take it. It is, takes a long time to grow, <laughs> and it is so beneficial to that local ecosystem and moss as well. I know moss is beautiful. I love moss deeply, but let it grow don't take it
1: if you want to grow your own in fact you can grow your mo- own yeah, grow home. your own. so it's better that you do that than steal it from the local ecosystem that was just the last thing i wanted
0: Annie, yeah, you've got a lot written here do you want to you want to cover some of it yeah sure
1: okay so as astra mentioned make sure that you double check the plant id again if you're not sure so you can start off checking with an app check with your foraging book check with the local community and that's actually a really really good way to get acquainted uh, i know obviously in COVID times it's not as easy to um join kind of local events but wherever you can if you can find a community and um, even online to double check things with it will help to make you a lot safer so uh, another thing to mention is that don't just use like witchy resources i think we've mentioned this in our um magic of research episode research. but um you should you should definitely be using things like farmer's and. Scholarly resources wherever you can because they're going to have botanical illustrations that give you the uh, best representation. Choosing somebody's anecdotal evidence, which might be heavily localized to their area, is not a good idea. When you get to actually preparing something from a her- um, from a herb, you need to think about the part of the plant that you're using. Um, so, for example, it can be really um, really valuable to take the flowers from elder, but the leaves and the twigs um, can be somewhat more toxic. So you need to pay attention to the t- the part of the plant because some of those might be contain they might contain toxic compounds and others it might be really useful the actual method of preparation also matters so oxalis for example has lots of oxalic acid in funnily enough and those those tubers can be eaten but they have to be cooked in a specific way to get rid of those oxalic acid crystals so just make sure that you know what you're doing don't just think okay well this says it's edible and then go ahead and eat it because there are completely different effects depending on the part of the plant that you ingest. The time of year also matters. So when you're identifying something, just make sure that it should be in bloom, it should be in leaf at the time that you're looking. Um, you know, if you find something, um I found some some clary sage for example the other day and Plantnet said, oh, this could be clary sage or it could be foxglove. Foxglove is obviously oh, cool. <laughs> yeah obviously very, very poisonous, right? So what I can do is I can be patient and I can wait a few a few weeks, and if that comes up in flowers, the foxglove flowers are going to be very distinctive. That's going to differentiate it really easily from clary sage. So again. If you don't know, don't eat it. I know I keep repeating that, but watching, waiting and actually paying attention to your local environment throughout the year is a really useful way of keeping yourself safe. And then I finally want to talk about actually testing things. So you want to be really, really careful when you're testing things. Your sense of taste and smell can be useful, but make sure that you're wearing PPE when you're doing that initially. So when you're touching things like things that could be hemlock, you should wear gloves. And this is because they can cause a photosensitive reaction. So it might not initially hurt, but then later, when you go into the sunlight, you then get a photosensitive reaction, starts to blister and burn. There's also obviously things like thorns, um, and finally, like with wild garlic, smelling it is a really useful way of differentiating it from the other plants. But you could bruise the leaves of something and then get something nasty. You know, like in the US, you have poison ivy, for example. You don't really want that on your hands. Oh, yeah, <laughs> we don't have that here actually, but it's I, I feel quite lucky. I <laughs>
0: Well, <laughs> the, the worst feeling ever is having
1: poison. <laughs> you can taste tests, but only do it if you absolutely 100% know what it is that you are testing. The The way that people teach you to do it is to put a very, very tiny amount in your mouth first and then spit it out. Wait for an hour and see if you've had a reaction. If that seems OK, then you can ingest a small amount, swallow it and then wait another um, another half an hour or so and just keep testing small amounts to see if you have a reaction because just because it says edible doesn't mean that you personally won't be allergic and it's always better safe than sorry.
2: Or certain things like uh, pine needle tea which first of all pine needle tea is great however if you live in a place where you is very common like I do I only, basically, if I make pine needle tea, it's only for my Christmas tree because I know it's balsam fir. (laughs) And even there, you don't want to have too much pine needle tea because I mean, you won't like have a, you won't like die if you have too much pine needle tea, but you won't feel great. But yeah, so certain things, like even if they are edible, that doesn't mean eat eat a lot of it indiscriminately. Yeah,
1: that's a good point. I I collected gorse as well. And like, that's got loads of alkaloids in the flowers, but you're probably not going to eat like a pound of gorse flowers. But I mean... (laughs) Just just bear that in mind when you're ingesting something like the amount does really matter.
0: And I want to touch on something kind of like from even though I have some pharmaceutical like background, this is something that we we talk about quite frequently, and that is cross reaction. I am going to warn people that I'm going to get a little scientific here because I went a little overboard into like looking into this mechanism, um, but I thought it was fascinating, and I'm going to share it because I'm the scientist. It's what we do. So cross reactions aren't really something people consider when engaging with herbal remedies. But when you use a plant for tea or you put it into a salve or however you intend to use it, you're working with the chemicals that they contain. And these have effects in your body. It's why why sometimes certain um, herbal remedies make you feel you know, feel different or can help with the certain symptoms that you have. And because of this, they can also interfere with other pharmaceuticals. The best example um, that I came across here, the one that's been most like well studied is St. John's wort, which is a, a natural antidepressant. And as a tea, it can be a great way to boost your mood because it enhances the release of like happy neurotransmitters, serotonin, dopamine, so on and so forth. But because of the mechanism behind that, it is also known for decreasing the, ethic- the efficacy of a lot of prescription medications. And if taken in a high enough dosage, can have adverse side effects. This is where I'm going to get science so I apologize if I put you to sleep. <laughs> Um, The chemical basis behind this comes from one molecule in particular, which is hyperforin. Now, hyperforin is a high-affinity ligand. This means that it binds very tightly to the human pregnant xenobiotic receptor. This receptor is a nuclear receptor expressed in the liver and intestine that essentially mediates the induction of xenobiotic metabolizing enzymes and efflux transporter gene transcription. Let me break that down. A xenobiotic metabolizing enzyme... Is an enzyme that recognizes foreign substances in your body and essentially digests them so that they can be excreted from your body safely. And an efflux transporter is something that will, if something enters into your cell and it's foreign and it's not supposed to be there, these efflux transporters are good at recognizing that and then forcing them back out to essentially to protect you. So why does why does all this matter? Hyperforin is the most potent activator of the pregnant xenobiotic receptor. So it has an EC, for those of you who are scientists, this will make a little bit more sense, but it has an EC 50 of 23 nanomolars. Now, this is really, really, really low. This means that at a very, very low concentration, it has a very, very intense effect. And it's half-life, meaning how long it stays um, kind of in its initial form in your bloodstream and how quickly it's eliminated. It has a half-life of 8 to 12 hours, which is also fairly long for a molecule. Um, Some... Molecules have half-lives of like, you know, maybe 30 to 45 minutes. So 8 to 12 hours, it's is pretty long um, for a molecule. And the issue with that is that this long half-life can lead to a lot of accumulation over time. Especially if you're doing something like drinking St. John Ward's tea, where consistently ingesting this molecule, it can grow in concentration. And given that it requires such a small concentration to activate these receptors, that can be really problematic. Um, the xenobiotic metabolizing enzymes are the ones that break down form material, like I said earlier, and this includes drugs. And so this, so enhancing their activity and also enhancing the activity of the efflux transporters, it, it essentially pumps out drugs that get into your system right back out. So you lower their, their overall efficacy, You essentially prevent them from getting to their targets. And the xenobiotic metabolizing enzymes, because they're activated and more are being produced, you essentially break them down, and so they're unable to even reach your cells. So basically, St. John's Wort can lead to decreased oral bioavailability, meaning that they don't actually get to their intended target. Enhanced systemic clearance; they don't last as long as, your, as long in your bloodstream as they might from like what we know scientifically with like um, the serum stability studies. And they have reduced efficiency because again, they can't get to their target. So that's like an instance of an herb that, you know, people might not think actually has much of an effect, has a really big effect and can severely, severely decrease the efficiency of, of medications. It's a really big issue with birth control. It's something that's been studied um, pretty, pretty frequently. And there's a lot of um, references on it. I can include a few people like for you in the description below if you're curious. But all of this to say... <laughs> You should consult with your doctor first before engaging in any kind of herbal remedy that could potentially interact and interfere with other drugs. Some of these reactions are really dangerous and can lead to death. So I cannot, I can't stress the importance of checking and how, how important that is. Please consult your doctor. Don't think you know better than a medical professional. Um, they are trained in understanding cross-reactions and they can they can tell you. And if they even if they don't know off the top of their head, They have the background to do the research and understand kind of the science behind any cross-reaction. So please, I'm begging you, (laughs) go talk to your doctor before you do any kind of herbal remedy that could influence the current medications that you're taking
1: that's a really really good point That's actually really interesting because i knew that st john's walk did interact but i actually didn't know the mechanism so it's um it's really interesting to hear what yeah, it is
0: I it very fascinating and actually i i sent a handy this paper but i will also include it in the description box below the paper looks at some very common herbs that are um, used in society and looks at their mechanisms of action within our bodies and how they do interact with different pharmaceutics um if you're curious go read it fair warning it is a science paper so it's going to have a lot of that terminology um, but hey, if you're interested and you aren't a scientist, like, see if you can make sense of it. Um, I found it very, very interesting. But...
1: I, I was devastated that I couldn't eat grapefruit anymore when I started making <laughs> meds, <laughs> because it interferes with cytochrome P450 in your liver. So yeah. basically, it again, decreases the bioavailability, um, which is really, really annoying. So if you're on certain um, medications, you should not be eating grapefruit. So it's pretty amazing how our food true. <laughs> yeah, it's
0: crazy. Absolutely insane. Okay, let's move on to burning <laughs> again.
2: Um, oh, one last oh, yeah. thing for ingestion. I think this is said a lot, but I don't think it's said enough. Don't ingest anything that is like a flying ointment tincture. I have seen people make th- tinctures out of herbs traditionally found in flying ointments, which are all poisonous. <laughs> Do not ingest them. <laughs> Don't ingest it. Don't ingest henbane. Don't ingest... Or what is one of the belladonna. But, yeah. Just don't... Just don't ingest... I know people sell flying tinctures. Just, you know, err on the side of caution. And same thing with, like, going back to what I said earlier about certain things. Like, if you have too much of it, it can cause... Water. It can make you feel kind of weird. Mugwort is one of those things. As well as wormwood. Err on the side of caution. Uh, if you... If you have a womb and you have your period, mugwort can can make that happen. Mugwort
0: can fuck up your like that whole cycle. So just be careful. If you're pregnant, it can cause you to yeah. miscarry, like check, check yeah. the herb, check the properties, make sure you're being safe. Yeah. Um on that same note, if you do make a tincture, please label it like with the with what you use okay. so that you don't have like fly ointment and forget that you included all these toxic plants. Um labeling to make sure that you know what's going on later is super super important so
1: or a doctor needs to see what you've taken if you need to go to the hospital later
0: you do something that causes you to almost die um letting them know what was in what you took will be helpful they can it'll give them a better basis for how to treat you good point (laughs) oh
2: i see we on our list i don't think we talk about like salves at all but that's fine uh when you're using salves just note that if like you put it on your wrist like that is going straight into your system. It'll take a bit, but it'll get there. <laughs> so be mindful you know that's why I think back in like the early 2000s people were like freaking out about people writing things on their wrists. I don't actually know any merit of that, but I remember that was like the main reason is like um, if you put things there it will go into your system slowly, but it will get there very strongly. So be mindful what you know you put on those places of your body where there are a lot of veins like your wrist your neck and ankles anywhere where there's like a lot of a lot of like blood flow and like very thin skin layer
0: general kind Um, of rule of thumb there if you can see the veins through your skin in that particular area you probably shouldn't put anything on it or like if you do be aware that it will be absorbed much more quickly than if you were to say to like put on your legs Okay, now we'll move to burning. I have in big bold letters to double check the plant ID. Are you sick of us saying that? It's important. Double check <laughs> the plant ID. The other thing is to check if it's even suitable to burn. Okay, so we love to burn things in the witchy community, but some herbs release combustion products that are toxic to humans and animals, and some just the burning can be dangerous. For example, I, we touched upon this a little bit earlier, but Plants like poison ivy, poison sumac, and poison oak contain an oil called urushiol, And is that how you pronounce it? I don't even know. Anyways, and this is what leads to the irritation on your skin. It's what causes those those bumps and those lesions. But when burned, you can also inhale the smoke and the oil, and that can irritate your nasal passages, your lungs, and cause swelling. So like that's something that you should be mindful of. I know something else that people don't think about, but it is a problem, is cinnamon. So... While not being harmful when ingested, except in large quantities. Please don't do that. um, It can be flammable under the right conditions. Cinnamon comes from the dried bark of the cinnamomum verum. Is that how you pronounce that? Latin names. They're important people. We should know them. And its flavor (laughs) and smell can be attributed to two specific chemicals, cinnamaldehyde and eugenol. Now, if if you're a chemist (laughs) and you recognize kind of the functional groups of part of these molecules, the alcohol and the aldehyde. These are both very volatile um, chemicals and it's one of the reasons why cinnamon is so fragrant, Fragrant, but those compounds are also highly combustible. So for instance, if you were going to like sprinkle cinnamon over a flame, it would combust and you would get a larger flame. So please be careful when you're working with like um, ground cinnamon. Cinnamon sticks, I would say, are a little bit safer, but like burning will still release these chemicals. So it's, it's just not safe to burn cinnamon. Please don't. <laughs> please don't do it. All of this to say, just be very careful about the herbs that you're burning and make sure that if you burn them, they don't release anything that's going to be toxic to you. Um, Always, always check beforehand.
1: You guys mentioned burning things outside a lot. And I think that's really good advice because if you're not sure about something, um, at least then you're burning it in kind of an environment where you've got lots of ventilation. Whereas if you're burning it in an enclosed space where you're going to get overwhelmed very quickly, maybe you have pets who are going to get overwhelmed. It just gets very dangerous very quickly. So if you're kind of not sure about something, you can't find very much information about it. Ideally, you shouldn't be burning it anyway, but at least if you're going to do it, do it somewhere where there's a lot of ventilation and um, you're not going to risk inhaling large quantities of it. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Okay, and i really going to get to my favorite part, which is chemicals. Okay, people, don't burn chemicals. Don't do it. I don't care what it is. Don't burn the chemicals. Okay. I think <laughs> chemical that has, Okay, well, let me back up a little bit. First of all, if you can't define a reaction for what you are going to try and burn, don't fucking, don't burn it, okay? Like, (laughs) don't do it. I can't stress this enough. Like, the number of people that have burned chemicals and, like, things have exploded in their faces. I read a story about a laboratory in the University of Washington where they burned, well, they didn't intentionally do it, but there was an an unknown chemical in this, like, jar by an open flame it caught fire and the lab exploded and it almost burned down. Like, I'm not kidding. These these things are dangerous. Like, please be careful. Any chemical that has a hazard must have something called a safety data sheet or an SDS in compliance with OSHA regulations. Now, these SDSs contain information about the chemical, about associated hazards, handling, reactivity, disposal guidance, and so on. If you're going to be using something that could be hazardous, Please check to see if you can find an SES for it. You probably can. There are literally so many of them. I would know because I've had to write so many of them and give it a look through. It's so much better to be prepared as chemical reactions can sometimes go really wrong really, really fast. There was somebody in one of the Discord servers were in. I'm bringing this up because it like just made me want to die inside. And they had dyes used, I think, for pottery and they were trying to combine them to create like a crystal. Listen, <laughs> that is not safe to do in your garage the people who do these things and like make synthetic crystals or you know other synthetic materials they're trained and they have they have the proper sts they have the ppe that's necessary for these reactions if you don't have that and you don't have the training don't do i don't care how cool it looks in the youtube video don't do it okay please (laughs) i'm begging you as a chemist, like don't do it okay that's it i'm done ranting
1: Another common one is sulfur because that was used to purify in ancient Greece. So a lot of people think they can burn sulfur, but it releases sulfur dioxide, which is very irritating to your lungs. Um, I actually happen to have a bag of sulfur with me today (laughs) Um, because my granddad was a chemist and he had a whole load of uh, uh, chemicals in the garage from... The days before safety was quite as rigorous as it is. So I had to uh, dispose of these through the proper chem- chemical means in the lab. Um, and it, it's just ridiculous how people manage to get their hands on things and think they can just treat it willy-lilly. But we, we have to treat these in a very, very specific way in the lab. And there's a reason for that. Mm-hmm. Um, we have also specific um, places like a fume hood where we can deal with these in a way that doesn't expose us to all the harmful chemicals that might um, re- eventuate from reactions. So,
0: Don't. Mess around with the chemicals. Don't do it. <laughs> I need to, like, calm down. <laughs> I think our next topic—oh, actually, Annie, did you want to touch upon this essential oil comment?
1: There's a book called The Chemistry of Fragrance, which is quite nice, um, I, which I would really recommend, because I think if you're going to make essential oils, if you're going to go down that path of heating up compounds uh, and trying to distill things which might be flammable and, you know, generating chemical reactions— it's a good idea to know what you're doing before you set out to do it. Even if you don't really feel like you know a lot about chemistry, this book is really good because it gives you a really good basic overview. If there's some um, history in there, there's basic chemistry in there, there's uh, it's a really good instructional guide. So my advice is if you want to start out, at least have a foundation in the kind of science that's happening so you can assess the risk um, more readily. So that's, that's my reading recommendation for this for this episode.
0: Okay, now we're going to move into crystals. Yay. I also have a lot written here, so bear with me. It's also going to get a little science-y again, so just fair warning. We often hear a lot of people warn against putting water-soluble crystals in water, but what does that exactly mean? Okay. What is happening on a chemical level is that water is a polar substance, meaning that it has an uneven distribution of electrons across the molecule. The oxygen is more electronegative than the hydrogens, and we represent this by saying the oxygen has a partial negative charge and the hydrogens have a partial positive charge. The kind of non-scientific way to say this is that oxygen is being a bully and essentially taking the electrons from the hydrogens to itself because it's greedy. You've also probably heard the term well, it's not a term, it's a phrase really, that likes dissolve likes, which means that something that is highly polar will be dissolved in something else that is polar. Water, again, is polar, but something non-polar won't dissolve in a polar, subs- in a polar um, solvent or solution. So when it comes to crystals, if it ends in ite, I-T-E, keep it out of water. And the reasoning is because a lot of popular crystals like fluorite, selenite, calcite, and halite Are made from minerals that are ionic. Now, what is the difference between ionic and polar? Ionic means that you've got species with specific charges being attracted to one another electrostatically, similar to like positive pole of a magnet being attracted to the negative pole, same kind of idea. The difference is that because these molecules are held together by charge in their crystalline um, lattice structure, that can easily be disrupted by water, which again has this uneven distribution of electrons, leading to two separate quote unquote charges. On the same molecule. Basically the water comes in and it begins to interact with the different parts of these minerals. For example the oxygen of the water might interact with the calcium 2 plus ion and fluorite and it causes it to dissolve. So why is this bad? <laughs> well um this is kind of an extreme example but on the off chance that you have some like sulfuric acid just lying around um which you shouldn't have so if you do like I'm a little concerned and you mistake it for water and drop fluoride in, you'll produce hydrofluoric acid and you'll die. Like case some point, you'll be dead. I said, that's a little dramatic (laughs) and it is because hopefully no one has that. But when you put it, put a crystal that ends in ITE in a specific volume of water and let it sit for a specific length of time, more of these, if we're taking fluoride, for example. More of these fluorine ions would dissolve, and the concentration will increase over time. If, you're t- if you were to ingest the solution at a high enough concentration, like high levels of fluorine are bad, we know this even you know outside of the the chemical reasoning. So if you ingest this at a high enough concentration, you could lead to cause severe health issues for yourself. I and mean, this this is the case for pretty much any crystal that is in an ITE. At a high enough concentration, these the um, products that they break down to when exposed to water are toxic to you. Other crystals like pyrite and hematite when react with water result in the formation of sulfate and iron iron hydroxides, which is rust. Don't drink rusty water. I think that should <laughs> be a good one. Um, and even worth to note here as well is that even if you can't see the rust, that doesn't mean the rust isn't there. Okay? You can't. You might not be able to visualize it, but that doesn't mean it isn't there. So just don't drink it. Don't put it in water and don't drink it. Okay? And the last thing I have to say. <laughs> is talking about insoluble crystals in water. At this point, can we just like agree not to put crystals in water? Anyways, let's get into the reason. So insoluble crystals won't dissolve in water, but they still shouldn't be put into your water or any solution that you intend on drinking because the surface could be dirty and, you know, could be harboring a lot of microscopic organisms like bacteria. You don't know what's on it unless you want to streak it onto an agar plate and see what grows. If you do this, just no, you will probably be disgusted those microorganisms will contaminate your water and then if you ingest it you are ingesting those microorganisms and just because you can't see it doesn't mean it doesn't exist furthermore these crystals again they won't dissolve but a lot of crystals sometimes have like micro fractures in them and so they could chip in such small places that you don't actually see those chips like floating in solution and so you can't um filter them out and so if you drink it and then you ingest these like chips of crystal that could also be really damaging to your stomach lining, to your intestines, and so on. Okay, so case in point, that entire conversation: don't put crystals in water ever. Don't do it; it's not worth it. If you want to charge crystals with water or charge water with crystals, put them around whatever vessel you're using. Like there are ways to do it without putting them in water. The crystal water bottles that, like I've seen around sometimes the witchy communities, please don't. It's not safe unless the crystals are somehow separated from the water that you're drinking. But just again, don't put crystals in water for all of the reasons that we mentioned previously.
1: Also, this shouldn't need to be said, but don't put crystals in any of your orifices because of the same reason for bacteria. I feel like this has been covered extensively in media by a gynecologist called Dr. Jen Gunter, but just to reiterate, do not put them in any orifices because you could get toxic shock syndrome and it, yeah, you can die from that actually.
0: Yeah, so when you put something inside yourself, like if you if you were to, which you shouldn't, please don't. A lot of those areas, those membranes are meant are like much more, um, they absorb things much more quickly than it would be if you like rubbed onto your skin. That's why it's so, so, so dangerous because you're exposing it. Especially if it ends in ITE, your like areas that are lubricated produce polar-based substances that will dissolve these crystals and then the byproducts will be absorbed into your body which is bad and can lead to things becoming very toxic very quickly. Don't do it. Okay, don't do it. But okay, and I've ranted enough about crystals, so let's move on. <laughs> I think the last thing we're going to talk about is the less like specific topic, essential our essential oils.
2: Yeah, so speaking of essential oils, I told my my l- lovely co-host <laughs> that I had quite the experience With essential oils, oh, was it last weekend or the weekend before that, maybe? So before I get into that fun story, err on the side of infused oils or dilute, pre-diluted oils than 100% essential oils. And if you have pets, I swear to God, (laughs) the amount of times I've seen this happen, where people will be like, oh, I'm like burning this essential oil. And they're like, oh, look at this cute picture of my cat. And I'm like, oh my God, (laughs) no. So essential oils are, are not able to be processed by animals. They like breathe it in and like it goes straight to their nervous system and they can die very easily, especially certain kinds of essential oils. Certain kinds of essential oils are like super deadly to pets. Um, But in general, all essential oils have the potential to be toxic to animals. Every single one of them, just because of the way that they are made and so in general if you really want to use essential oils use them outside like i saw someone was oh i i knocked over this statue and i want to like re-bless it and so i covered it in essential oils and they were like oh my cat likes my cat was the one who knocked it over and i was like no if they get that on their fur it won't go away for a long time animals fur the general rule of thumb is if you can smell the scent on your animal's fur it's too strong Because things like stick to their fur and they want to, uh, cats specifically want to smell like cat. So (laughs) they will groom themselves until they smell like cat, which means that they are taking in all of those particles that have stuck to them. So if you have pets, err on the side of no essential oils. My fun experience (laughs) with essential oils (laughs) a few weekends ago. So I had pennyroyal essential oil, 100% essential oil. Pennyroyal is part of the mint family and i was i was using it because penny royal is good at keeping bugs away specifically from like a natural perspective specifically ants penny royal is also toxic very toxic to cats so i also should have been way more careful about this but i was getting ready to fill up the thing i was going to go burn it outside i was going to go outside so that way to ward off the wasps and say hey don't make your nest here please i spilled it <gasps> all over my hands and my arms too which meant that it got all over my clothes and for like the next 30 minutes everything I touched even when I washed my hands in warm water like that didn't get rid of it everything I touched smelled like pennyroyal and very very strong and it got to the point where I actually had to sleep on the couch I had to turn on baking soda. Baking soda is an odor Mm -hmm. neutralizer. And coffee is another odor neutralizer. I had all of those things just strewn about my room. I washed all of my sheets because went on to take a nap and I woke up and I was just like covered in rashes from the essential oil that I had touched the bed, (laughs) touched my covers and gotten it on myself. I took a hot shower and I put on my air purifier and I shut the room. And I like fed my cat outside the room because I was like, there is too much happening here. And like I've been working with essential oils for years and years now, and just even even though I wasn't even gonna burn it inside, I just just the spilling of it all over my hands, it was like a disaster. And like I was coughing so much because pennyroyal is super strong in general, and my lungs were not having it. <laughs> I had to like sit outside and like, purify my whole body and I washed all my clothes, and it was just a nightmare. So in general, err on the side of not essential oils if you can, and that's the sad tale of
1: love. <laughs> a good thing to do as well is um, to make sure that, that you have your essential oils diluted, because a lot of them can be very, very irritating to your skin. And um, This particularly applies to things like cinnamon, um, that can be very, very irritating to certain people, um, and also to citron oils, so things like lemon-based oils. Um, They are photosensitizing in the same way I mentioned about um, hemlock can be. So you might not notice, oh, you put it on your skin, you put it on the back of your neck, and it feels fine, but you go out in the sun, and then you have like a really nasty blister on the back of your neck. So um, either wear it diluted um, or patch test it first on a kind of inconspicuous area that's away from the sun. Um, And another thing you can do if um, you're not sure is you can actually wear it on a phylactery. So um, I have one of these It's like a... of scent locket type necklace you can get them quite cheaply it's a little sort of bottle that you can wear around your neck so you can have kind of be wearing the oil wearing the properties of the plant without actually physically wearing it on your skin and it's a lot safer that way than having something that potentially react badly to you or your pet
0: yeah and i want to talk really quickly about some dilution protocols um again this might get a little sciencey sorry i am like all about the science today so if you know the concentration and sometimes if you buy essential oils they will actually tell you the concentration of the oil within So if you know it, you can do a simple dilution with like our favorite M1V1 equals M2V2 equation. This is probably the simplest and the easiest method. So then you can achieve a very specific concentration simply by diluting with with water or another substance. If you don't, however, I would recommend doing something called a serial dilution. This is probably your your kind of next best bet. 10X serial dilutions are the easiest. Um, Also, I would say probably the most popular and essentially what that means is you would take one-tenth of your initial stock solution, which would be the essential oil, and kind of its pure form. And you would add it to another tube and then add another solution to dilute it with to a specific volume. So I'll give you an example. Let's say we're working with lemon essential oil. Yeah. So you have the lemon essential oil in its pure form, and you want to perform a serial dilution to find the concentration that doesn't burn your skin. And you would do this by patch testing, not spraying it all over your body the first time. Okay, so you would take one mil of your essential oil and then you would add nine mils of water for a total of 10 mils. So this is your first 10x dilution. That means instead of going from, let's say you have like 100 millimolar, divide that by 10. Now you have 10 millimolar. These concentrations are really high, by the way. They would probably not ever be this high, but I'm just using it for example. So that's solution two. And then you're going to take one mil from solution two and you're going to put it into another like tube. And you're gonna add nine more mils of water. Now we've diluted it 10 times again. So that 10 millimolar solution is now a one millimolar solution. And you would keep doing that. And each time you could patch test that on your skin to see if it burns. If it burns, do another dilution until it reaches a point where it doesn't burn. I would actually recommend maybe going two dilutions past the point where it's not burning. Just so that you know it really is like safe at that concentration. Yes. And I actually have a very easy guide to cereal cereal dilutions. I will include below in the description. So if you want to do this, um, that should also be a good starting point for you. Which means that we're gonna move on to the second part of this, which is ingesting essential oils. Okay. I'm also Whoa. really passionate about this, so I apologize if I get a little worked up. <laughs> that shit is concentrated, okay? It is in its pure I'll oil it. form, like that is it is concentrated stuff so please don't think that it's the same as like dropping a drop of lemon juice in your water like not the same thing at all dropping like one drop of lemon essential oil is like dropping 50 lemon peels into your water okay it's like She's It's really, really, really concentrated. Because of that, they should be treated a lot more like a medicine and handled appropriately with, like, dosaging, you know, keeping that in mind. Quite frankly, you just, like, shouldn't adjust it at all because it's not safe. Also recognize that they're oils, right? And because they're oils, they're not going – that means that they're nonpolar, and they're not going to dissolve in a polar solution, which would be, like, water. So if you take essential oil and you drop it into water – it's not going to dissolve in the water. You're going to have oil droplets in water. So if you were to then drink said solution, the oil isn't going to go down with water. Instead, it's going to actually bind to the mucosal membrane of your throat because your mucus is nonpolar. Well, it's a mixture of polar and nonpolar, but um, the nonpolar parts of it will bind to the nonpolar oil And so instead of being washed down to your stomach with the water, it's going to bind there and it could lead to burning and irritation. Okay, don't drink essential oils, please. You have no reason to. If you want your water to taste like lemon, just put in some lemon juice, okay?
1: If you do want to dilute something safely, um, so for example, the cereal dilution example we used before, um, some really good carrier oils are sweet almond oil. It does have a little bit of a smell of itself. Fractionated coconut oil is another good one. Some people do react to this, so just make sure, again, that you patch test it. Um, some people use olive oil. I find that this, the smell of olive oil is actually a little bit too strong. Uh, do you guys use any carrier oils? Or, um... I think
2: grapeseed. I know jojoba oil. Grapeseed and jojoba oil <laughs> are both really... Jojoba oil is really expensive, though. Yeah.
0: It's also a little expensive, but it's not as expensive as jojoba oil. Um, I found and it doesn't right. have any like severe smell like olive oil either, so it's a pretty good. I use that in a lot of my like alchemical workings, um, and it works
2: pretty well. One last thing I will say about essential oils. Here's a fun list of essential oils that are specifically toxic to pets, specifically cats, but generally follow this protocol for dogs, too. Bergamot, cinnamon, clove, eucalyptus, pennyroyal, geranium, lavender, lemon, lime, and orange, anything citrusy, lemongrass, rose, rosemary, sandalwood, tea tree, thyme, the mint family and lang, lang those ones are specifically dangerous to cats. The, the essential oils. Now, the smell of it is not necessarily the thing that makes it dangerous. It's like the, the volatile oil, like the volatile compounds and essential oils that makes them dangerous. If you have pets, tea tree oil is so deadly to pets. If you have pets, just don't even buy it. Don't even buy products with it in it. It is so dangerous for them. It is so, like, it will kill them <laughs> very 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 quickly there's unfortunately not much you can do once they have either ingested it or if it has gone in um if they've breathed it in have pets just don't get us. don't get tutorial <laughs> just don't do it it's not worth it
0: yeah okay um, not that you yeah. heard us rant about <laughs> <Lots> of- <laughs> um, we have one final segment and felicity really <laughs> <laughs> Um, and again, in all capitals here, so we're yelling at you through the screen, yelling out of out of a desire to keep you safe. Mm-hmm. Don't put it in the ground and other environmental concerns. So Felicity, take it away. Yes, I will go through this
2: and then you too, if you want to expand on why you shouldn't put it in the ground. So here are many things not to put in the ground or on the ground. If it has salt, do not put it in the ground. People love to salt the earth for some reason at witchcraft. If it has salt, I will say this again. If it has any salt, do not put it in the ground. If it is an invasive plant species with a possibility to grow here in, in like Northeastern uh, America, I don't know why I forgot what country <laughs> <laughs> Um <laughs> here in the Northeast. Things like wormwood and mugwort will grow like nobody's business. If it is invasive plant species with a possibility to grow seeds, for example, do not put it in the ground. If it has alcohol, be mindful where you put it. You can pour alcohol in the ground, just don't pour it in the same place too much. Like, do it in different. Um, I am going to
0: speak on that really quickly. So, with the alcohol, um, ethanol and isopropanol specifically, lead to stunted plant growth, and at high enough concentration, which would happen if you continuously pour it into the same place, um, can actually lead to to plant death. So, be very mindful of what you're putting in the ground preferably don't put any methanol at all in the ground methanol can be very toxic um, to plants if you do it a high enough enough concentration i did read there was a study that said methanol can actually maybe help promote plant growth even but i didn't look into that too much but just like in general if you can don't put alcohol in the ground it's really not good for it at a high enough concentration it can lead to to plant death so be very mindful of, of that
1: You can always, um, if you do like wine, for example, like like libating wine is quite common, I would say. You can always follow it up with water to decrease the concentration of alcohol there, just to kind of make it a little bit less risky.
2: So if it has wax, especially paraffin, do not put it in the ground. (laughs) If it's food that might attract wild animals or shallow enough for a dog or a coyote that can dig it up, do not put it in the ground. I live in an area with lots of coyotes. If you are burying an offering, generally try not to bury meat, but if you're like really insistent on it, dig it six inches plus. Because the last thing you want is to attract coyotes or raccoons to where you are. If it's toxic to wild animals who can get to it, because they will, do not put it in the ground. If it is not biodegradable, I'm looking at jar spells here. <laughs> do not put it in the ground. Do not put jars in the ground.
0: Yeah, I word of note with that. Um, if you intend on burying something, consider doing it with biodegradable items. So a friend of mine in uh, yeah. my Discord server once suggested using avocado peels, which I think is brilliant because those are biodegradable and they come in those like little boats. And so they, they would hold whatever you were intending to, to bury. Yeah, jar spells, listen, don't put your jars in the ground, okay? Don't, don't do it. It's bad don't for the environment, a lot of times they're going to get dug up if you don't bury them deep enough. Glass does not decompose, okay? So don't put it in the ground. You are disrupting an ecosystem by adding something that won't decompose over time.
2: Yeah, so I think I've reached the end of do not put it in the ground. <laughs> if you guys want to expand on any of those points.
1: Also, don't don't disrupt the ground, that's another thing. Um, it's really common for people who are out in nature to like make cairns and things like that so like picking up rocks and stacking them up and but, you know it's a common thing people to do when they're out hiking um, or even as part of like a, a witchcraft practice but that's really really bad for local environments. Um, there are insects that live under there and um, the um, hellbender salamander in Appalachia is apparently also very endangered because people keep disrupting its habitat so not only should you not be burying things that are not biodegradable but just Leave the land in as close as a state as you found it. I think that's generally good advice.
0: Okay, so we've been recording for a long time. So we'll wrap it up here
2: um,
0: with some final kind of tips related to risk assessment. There's a couple questions that you should ask yourself um, as we go along. And we, can, we can like rotate through these um, if you guys want. And the first one is ask yourself if you have to do it. So if you don't need to do something that could potentially be hazardous, don't do it. You you don't ever need to feel pressured. And if there's a safer alternative, please choose that route. Your safety and also the safety of the environment is of paramount importance. It's much more important than, quite frankly, the spell that you're doing. It's not going to help you if you're dead. So just ask yourself if you have to do it. And if there's a safer alternative, please choose a safer alternative. Substituting things into like spell work that maybe are more like safer for you, but maybe aren't like for, okay, let me just, for instance, if you're going to do a like if you're going to make flying ointment, let's say that you want to include maybe some herbs that aren't as toxic to just to be safer about it. That's not going to decrease the like magical properties of your ointment. Like it's still going to be a flying ointment. You've just been safer about it. Like that, those are the kind of things that we're talking about. Replacing something with a safer alternative doesn't decrease the magical like usage or the intensity of which it, it might um like have so just keep that in mind and
1: um, the next thing is oh sorry and <laughs> <Right. laughs> um, so the next thing is if you have to do it then can you somehow do less of it so this is just remembering that your risk is always the hazard of the activity you're doing times the exposure so how can you minimize your exposure to it So in Felicity's example, that might be aliquoting a really small amount of her um, pennyroyal essential oil out so she didn't spill a whole lot under her arms. That might be scaling down the size of a candle or the amount of incense you burn. It might be diluting an essential oil, but basically just minimizing the amount that you're using um, so that you are exposed to less hazard.
2: And if you have to do it, what systems can we use to lower the risk? For example, using sand or salt to extinguish fire and ventilation. if you can have your windows open or even better if you can go outside that just even having the ventilation our, our lungs are so sensitive especially right now we want to take good care of them
0: and the final question is how can you continue to improve it safety is ever evolving it is not a static um, once and done type of thing you should constantly be evaluating the safety of your practice and the things that you're doing and if something is no longer safe reevaluate ways to then make it safe Always be looking at what you're doing and making sure that the way in which you're performing certain spells or rituals are being done safely, both for you, the environment, and any like pets or children that you might hive around. Um, It's the constant evaluation, something to always be aware of. But I think that wraps up um, this episode. Thank you so much for listening. It is going to be a long one. So I appreciate you taking the time to listen through. And yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll see you next week.